we do have a long way to go to get all those people registered to the voting age. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting two million ballots by hand. This episode of Dead Men Don't Vote is made possible in part by the Election Verification Network. The nonpartisan EVN is made up of election officials, researchers, and advocates committed to accurate, accessible, transparent, reliable, and verifiable elections. Learn more or get advice from experts at electionverification.org. I'm Gregory Miller, software industry veteran, non-practicing IP lawyer, and tireless advocate for verifiable elections. I'm your host for the second part of our special two-part conversation series about an important topic of securifying digital remote voting, and whether you truly can or not, asking things like why is that a challenge and why that needs to be clearly understood as we head into the 2023 timeframe where we anticipate considerable energy around this type of voting ahead of 2024. Let's listen in on the tangled web of iVoting. A very special welcome back to our audience coming back to the tangled web of iVoting about the intersection of the internet and absentee voting. I'm Audrey Malagon, professor of mathematics at Virginia Wesleyan University and former mathematical advisor to verified voting. And I'm joining John Seves, the CTO of the OSET Institute, to untangle the complexities of the Global Blockchain Association report on comparing methods of digital ballot return. All right. And to quickly recap, in part one, we defined the various ballot return methods that are in use at present, from the familiar paper absentee voting with postal return to various digital methods ranging from email to fancy crypto and digital ledgers. And in part two, we defined the seven points of comparison. Here in part three, we're going to focus on the finale of the GBA report, which is a table that actually does the comparison of the seven return methods based on the seven comparisons. I'd say seven's our lucky number, John. We've simplified it a bit in two ways. First, the report has two variations of physical return. But as we explained in part one, we're just going to merge them into the basic physical return methods of paper ballots, plus an affidavit returned via postal services. And then similarly, from a cybersecurity perspective, all physical return methods have the same yes or no on these seven comparisons. So there's no real reason to separate them out. And just the same way, we're using this umbrella term, get ready for it, email etc. We're using that term to refer to the trio of email, fax, ballot return via file upload or a web portal. All three of those things have basically the same characteristics for these points of comparison. They all have the same yeses, they all have the same noes. Although there are some distinctions between them that matter for cybersecurity, since they all have the same answers for these seven points of comparison, we're just lumping them together for brevity. And so that's why we'll be saying email, etc. a few times during this segment. And the answer is no, top to bottom, for all three of those. So that really leaves two more digital ballot return methods, both using modern cryptography for data security and integrity, for us to talk about. One method additionally uses digital ledgers, which we explained in part two. Right. 
So we're really comparing one physical return method with three flavors of digital return, email, et cetera, and two crypto heavy methods, one having a digital ledger. So we're really comparing one physical return method with three flavors of digital return, email, et cetera, and then two crypto heavy methods, one of which has a digital ledger. So let's get email, et cetera, out of the way first. Like Audrey just said, it's no top to bottom for all of them. Like physical return, email, et cetera, is not tamper evident. It's not destruction evident. And unlike the other two digital methods, email, et cetera, does not have data security for data at rest, as we explained in part two. That's right, John. And email, et cetera, gets a no on the latter four comparisons as well. It can't permanently separate a ballot from its affidavit. And indeed, it just can't ensure the secrecy of the ballot. Emailed ballots don't support an audit either. And like all digital return methods, email, et cetera, gets another no. You don't need to be physically present to tamper with an emailed ballot or faxed or uploaded. And a final no, these ballots can be tampered with wholesale. So we explained most of those in part two, and we're done with email, fax, and file upload, all of which are a complete step in security from physical return with practically no compensating factors, perhaps other than convenience. Yeah. And now, John, you and I tend to agree that for those final four comparisons, physical return basically gets a yes to all of them. But there was some slight disagreement in the report, so they aren't marked that way on those tables. Within the experience of election officials and election experts that we know, there's little or no concern that wholesale attacks are feasible on paper ballots. As we described before, a wholesale attack is getting access to basically all of the ballots from one point of entry or by one attacker. And that's just really not feasible without getting caught. Maybe in theory it's possible to tamper or swap every ballot in a whole county, but it's really too hard to try that and not get caught. So we've agreed, you and I, that physical return gets a yes on, yeah. on not being susceptible to that. Absolutely. Now, some of the folks in the GBA report contend that it is feasible, it has occurred in the past, and it could be done by a criminal syndicate, including dishonest insiders and election administration, that can do a wholesale swap for real paper ballots and replace them all with counterfeits. Respecting that opinion, that's why there's a footnote in the GBA report for some lack of agreement. And then similarly, there's a similar point for this ledgered method of digital return, where the claim is that the ledger makes wholesale tax in, attacks infeasible. Now, I would agree in part, but there are still wholesale cyber attacks on ballots en route to getting posted to a ledger. So that's another example of one of these little asterisks. But I think that uh, with those, those exceptions explained, we can at least get the John and Audrey version pretty simple. That's right. And along those same lines, we agree that for all practical purposes, once a paper ballot and an affidavit are separated, that's permanent separation. An affidavit goes into storage one way, the separated ballot is going to get mixed in with all the other ballots, and you really just can't feasibly go back and match that ballot with the affidavit that says who the ballot is from. And again, there was some difference of opinion among the folks in the GBA report, where some contended that it was feasible, for example, with fingerprint analysis to pair up a previously separated affidavit and ballot. Now, again, that would require dishonest election officials to abuse their access to these stored documents to do risk detection and prosecution, or it could require criminals uh, busting into storage facilities to grab the documents. Now, I'll, I'll say 
while I agree that those are real possibilities, nevertheless, we're looking for a baseline. So the ballot and affidavit separation process is a standard method for election administration. It's standard. And if it's not 100% perfect in theory, it is the baseline in practice, and it's essential for a secret ballot. So paper methods definitely have been judged by most election folks to meet this requirement of separation. Now, the question is, can digital methods do the same? Audrey? I'd say no. A digital ballot plus an affidavit can be copied at any point in its life cycle. So you could separate the original copy, but you can never guarantee that all those copies have been destroyed and that they don't exist out there somewhere together. So that's just a basic fact of a digital ballot. Anything can be copied. And there is one small footnote in the report about that as well. Do you want to explain that, John? Yeah, summarize it. Basically says an encrypted ballot and an encrypted affidavit that are associated with each other. Those could not be examined to compromise ballot secrecy. Now, that's true in the subset of cases where crypto is used correctly. But that's not everything. And you can't guarantee that normal people are going to do the crypto right. And secondly, it's also not the same as actually separating the ballot from information about the voter. Just saying that they're still together and encrypted and nobody can read them both is not actually separating them. And the standard is to truly separate these two documents. That's right. So the Audrey and John version of the story is that physical return can actually separate ballots from the affidavit with the voter's identity, but digital methods just can't do that or can't guarantee that it's done. Right. In an ideal world, maybe. And so that makes these digital methods subject to privacy concerns, as well as what we were talking about, wholesale attacks, and physical methods are not subject to the same level of wholesale attack, right? What about support for audits? My favorite. I think hey, John, before you go there, I have a question. This yeah. may sound silly, but what's a wholesale attack? Wholesale attack is where one attacker has a method to attack every ballot, like a piece of malware on an email server that tampers every ballot on the server. And that's distinct from, for example, a postal worker tampering with every ballot that one person can get their hands on. And they, one postal worker cannot get their hands on an entire county's worth of ballots. On the behalf of the non-techs here, thank you. Let me step out of the way. And in addition to the concerns about wholesale, the question then is, what about support for audits? Audrey's favorite. And the report is clear that digital methods do not support audits of the original ballot that the voter saw. So the report's pretty, pretty clear about that. Now, paper methods, of course, do support that audit. And there is a footnote in the report that I don't disagree with. It says auditing needs to follow careful processes for ballots that require transcription. So I don't want to go down that whole rat hole of transcription, but there are some footnotes and nuances. But the basic thing is supporting audits. You got that with paper ballots and you just don't got that with digital ballots. That's right. And that brings us to the last point, attacking requiring physical proximity to the ballots. So that's pretty much a yes for physical return. You can't attack a physical ballot unless you have some physical closeness to that ballot. But it's not true for digital return. Attackers from anywhere on the planet can mount cyber attacks for ballots that are digitally returned without having to actually be physically close to those ballots. Exactly. Now, again, there's a footnote that says 
when a voter uses a mobile device that has some particular hardware support for crypto, and that device is used in a particular way, then it's really hard for global actors to attack the system. Now, color me skeptical, but it's a moot point because you cannot force all your voters to use special hardware instead of the devices and computers that the voters already have. So there is a little bit of footnoteology going on here, but in, in my view, and I'm sure Audrey, you agree, it's a point. Yeah. So where does that leave us then? Like you said, for the final four comparisons, Audrey and John version, without the footnotes, here goes. All physical return methods get a yes on all four of those final four characteristics. And all digital return methods get a no. No privacy by separation, no audit of original ballots. They are susceptible to global attacks and wholesale attacks. And of course, the same is true for email, fax, and uploads, no for all. So where else does that leave us? We do have the two crypto-heavy methods that use modern data security, which is a must for any kind of digital return. Without it, you have ballots sitting around unprotected on computers that could be connected to the internet and attackable from anywhere. Yeah, that doesn't sound so good. So these two crypto-heavy methods do help with that. They provide uniform detection of tampering, again, so long as the crypto is used right. While physical return, even with all that tracking and whatnot being possible, physical return still has a risk of tampering. Yeah, tampering and destruction both. But again, physical proximity is required to tamper with a physical ballot. And digital methods are not destruction evident either. Though the ledger method gets partial credit. Destruction can be detected once a ballot gets on a ledger, but you can still destroy or tamper a ballot before it gets onto a ledger. So I'd call that a qualified no, another asterisk or footnote. There's no guarantee of detecting destruction of ballots. So are we ready for the net of the Audrey and John interpretation of this report? We covered all the comparisons, including the footnotes and the nuances from the GBA document. And I think we've settled on the Audrey and John version of the comparison. So yeah, we're ready. Okay. But looking at where we are, I think we should do that after a short break. You are listening to the Tangled Web of iVoting, a technical conversation about the intersection of the internet and absentee voting. This episode of Dead Men Don't Vote is made possible in part by the Verified Voting Foundation. The foundation strengthens democracy for all voters by promoting responsible use of technology in elections. Verified Voting works with election officials, policymakers, and democracy defenders across party lines to support public confidence in elections. Learn more at www.verifiedvoting.org. Welcome back to our final segment of the Tangled Web of iVoting, a technical conversation between the estimable Dr. Audrey Malagon, Professor of Mathematics at VWU, and Mr. John Sebas, the CTO at the OSIT Institute, about the intersection of the internet and absentee voting. This promises to be the juiciest of the segments, so let's rejoin Audrey and John. In progress. All right, John, let's make our final effort to untangle the complexities of this GBA report on comparing methods of digital ballot return. Okay, but actually... Think we did most of that untangling in the first three segments, so we're here this time to summarize and to provide our own take on the proverbial bottom line. To recap, in part one, we defined the various methods of returning an absentee ballot. In part two, we explained the seven points of comparison of those return methods based on cybersecurity. In part three, we stepped through the actual comparison using those seven points. 
both in the table in the GBA report and also some of the details and nuances. And now we are ready for the asterisk-less windup. So Audrey, can you step us through it? Sure. I think that there are really three main points here. So first, the most commonly used methods of electronic ballot return, which are email, fax, and file upload, we call those email, etc., are really pretty bad from a security point of view. They lack data-at-rest cryptographic protections, which means that ballots and affidavits can be easily and invisibly tampered or destroyed on any of several computers, undetected by cyber attackers anywhere in the world, in wholesale attacks. That's pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. There's really no ballot secrecy either, John. That's not even the worst of it. And there's no meaningful audit capability. Okay, so that's pretty clear. These these methods, though, they are feasible and they're somewhat simple. Email me a ballot. That seems pretty simple, right? So they're feasible, simple methods for a local election official to be able to meet their state's election laws that require that they provide some method of electronic ballot return for a specific subset of voters. And that's a requirement that local election officials in 30 plus states have to meet, even if they don't want to face these security challenges. So they have to choose something. And any one of these three simple methods do meet their legal obligation, but at a cost. The result is that remote voters, digital remote voters, are subject to many threats that regular voters just don't have to face. Yeah. And second, there are digital return methods with modern crypto, and those are better than email. But when we look at those specific seven points of comparison, you really don't get as much as you might think at first. At least in the Audrey and John interpretation, yeah. All you get is solid tamper detection, and uh, and that's just with the ledger. Some destruction can be detected in some cases. Now, is that a big win over physical return? I mean, it's a win, it's a difference, it's an improvement, but is it a big deal in the grand scheme? I certainly don't think so. It's really not a win, but it's more of a trade-off and actually kind of a bad one. It's hard to get excited about a system that only detects attacks without actually being able to prevent those attacks on ballots. And to get that not exciting possible benefit, you have to give up a whole lot. So you're giving up a meaningful audit, you're giving up the standard methods of absentee ballot secrecy, and we have to accept the possibility of those wholesale attacks from cyber attackers worldwide. Yeah, I find it hard to believe that there would be lots of local election officials who would find this to be a good trade-off. Although, as I said, they have to do something. I'll be charitable and I'll say this. If you were an election official who was willing to accept these same threats from email ballot return, then these crypto-heavy solutions, especially the one with the ledger, can mitigate these risks. Okay, but how much can they mitigate those risks? <laughs> That's impossible to say. So at least from you and me, Audrey, that is not super helpful guidance for election officials. And the reason is there's really two factors. So first, much of the protection depends on crypto, which is only helpful when it's used exactly right. So human error and technical error can still completely undermine and destroy the benefits of crypto. Uh So it really is hard to quantify the risk of people making human errors that accidentally give away the show. Yeah. And yeah, I would say just as importantly, even when the crypto is implemented correctly, it really can only help so much. 
Exactly. And that's the second point why it's hard to assess the risk. You still have threats of malware on voter devices and also on the servers that talk to those voter devices that receive the ballots. And if you're using a ledger, put them on a ledger. So if you're thinking about nation state adversaries, then current cyber defense doctrine tells you that you can assume that your systems will be breached or have been. Yeah. So with email return, ballot tampering, cyber attack is really not that hard. No, been demonstrated actually in an hour once in a programming challenge. (laughs) Wow. And with these crypto heavy methods, it's still pretty feasible for world cross adversaries. Yeah. And not just surreptitious nation state cyber attackers. I worry about adversaries who would want to do an attack on some kind of digital voting method and then on purpose get caught. So to have that tampering be detected. So take that tamper detection mechanism and use it to the adversary's advantage because it's a great way to feed conspiracy theories about elections stolen by mysterious hackers, right? So I think that with a ledger and the assumption that all the crypto is used, you do get some mitigation of the privacy and some mitigation of the risks of global wholesale attacks. It could be attractive to some, especially given how awful the email, et cetera, option is. But I worry about that assumption. Maybe that's enough to serve the most disadvantaged voters who couldn't vote otherwise. But yeah, even audits are only trustworthy if the ballots we're auditing are trustworthy themselves. So if we can't use audits to prove to the public that the computers didn't mess up and give the wrong election result then it looks like a step backwards from the progress we're making towards evidence-based elections that people can use to believe in the election outcomes, not just having to trust. Yeah, election officials don't like to rely on the tactic of saying, oh yes, just trust us, because we saw that didn't work so well in the last couple of election cycles, which is why it's more important than ever, in my humble opinion, to think about the ways in which these methods can be used to affect public trust. So with respect to these disadvantaged voters that you might be offering some form of digital ballot return to, it it looks like you're basically saying, maybe you couldn't vote at all. So go ahead and use this voting method where you have to accept some cybersecurity risks and you have to forego the benefit of audits. No, it's not just that, John. It's that plus we all have to give up the benefits of audits not just those voters. If there's an election with a close contest and a margin of victory that is smaller than the number of unauditable digitally returned ballots, then we really have no evidence of a correct election result. So that's why it's really important that we all work together to find secure methods so that all voters can reliably use a trustworthy method of voting. Yeah, incredibly important point. It's not just individual voters that are affected if they have to give away their secrecy, privacy, or auditability. It affects the election as a whole and all of us. And that's why I think that these remote voting methods most often are being advocated currently, being advocated only for small numbers of people, those who have no other option for voting. I call it faith-based voter service. As an election official, you provide the service and you pray you don't get an election result that's too close. That's why I surmise that a few years back in Alaska, they discontinued the policy of allowing pretty much everybody to return an absentee ballot via a file upload to a web server. When the usage of that method was rising 
and exceeded 5% of the voters and a really close Senate race was coming up, I think somebody had a little wake up moment. But I digress. You said that there were three key takeaway points. What's the third? The third is that paper absentee voting in all of its forms is pretty well understood by election officials and by many voters. We understand there are threats and election officials know how to manage them with audits. That's one of the key ways. And increased voter services like drop boxes, ballot tracking, similarly, email, fax, upload, they're pretty well understood general tools as well. And when you start using them to transmit ballots, the threats while they're there are not that hard to understand. Ah, yeah. So I'd like to think that we've done our part to help clarify and complement the detailed explanations in the GBA report, but threats aren't the same as risks. Risks are the likelihood that a threat will become an attack. So I think your point, Audrey, is really well taken. In the case of email, we can understand the threats pretty well. Whereas with the crypto-heavy complicated mechanism, we don't really even understand the threats. Ordinary people wouldn't. You and I might. But then let's look at risks. So I just don't think people are very good about comparing the risk of a bad postal worker to risks from cyber threats. Exactly, John. The threats of paper ballot return, well understood. Threats of email, fax, upload, maybe not as well understood, but it's possible to wrap our head around that. But risks, much more difficult to really assess and understand. And the crypto-heavy methods, it's much harder there to even understand the threats, let alone try to assess the risks. So if you're an election official and you're looking at options for electronic ballot return, there is some real homework to do at the technical level. Yes, and not just to understand what you might be signing up for, but also to understand the policy issues. Is this available to anybody who asks for it? If not, then for whom, how, why? Oof. Now we're getting into policy land. I'm, we're leaving technical land. I'm getting uncomfortable. So that sounds like a pretty good of the ending. But what else do you have before we close? Just three things, John. Audit, audit, and audit. How about you? <laughs> of course. I also have three. Hard problems in computer science. So I'm not saying that sufficiently secure electronic ballot return is impossible. But until we tackle some hard problems in computer science, that list is subject for another day, but we just won't know for sure. So anybody who really cares about military voters' accessibility needs, other disadvantaged voters, they really need to be pushing for more research and development on these hard problems for the longer term. In the medium term, there's a lot more voter services, especially for voters with accessibility needs, that could be done to reduce the number of voters who might even have a need for electronic ballot return. And John, what can we do in the short term? Huh, you guessed it. More investment in risk-limiting audits and other parts of evidence-based elections. In the short term, we need to get better at fighting the conspiracy theorists and convincing people about valid elections. We need to get better at that before we start adding internet computing into the mix for large numbers of voters. It's no surprise, I agree with auditing. And digital ballot return methods are really trying to solve real problems for voters. But we do need to understand the new problems that they introduce as well, mm. and how those compare to the issues that we already understand with paper return. So I guess we're ready to wrap? Almost. But first, 
One more special thanks to you, Audrey. It's always a pleasure to collaborate with you. And with that, thanks to the maestros of the Dead Men Don't Vote podcast, co-host Gregory Miller, executive producer Roy Field Brown. Hey, thank you for listening to this extended two-part conversation with these two subject matter experts on the tangled web of iVoting. Again, I'm Gregory Miller, and on behalf of my co-hosts, thank you for listening. Dead Men Don't Vote is a podcast production of the Trust the Vote Project. Our executive producer is indeed Royfield Brown. Our program's producer and executive editor is Aram Fisher. Our news reporter is Frayne Masters. Our content research and fact checker is Jenya Coulter. Media relations managed by Sloe McManus and art direction by Bob Smith. The podcast is produced on Riverside FM, London, England, and Berkeley, California. Copyright 2022 and thereafter. All rights reserved. The Trust of a Project is a nonprofit, nonpartisan initiative to build the people's voting system. Visit www.trustthevote.org to learn more and join the movement. The Trust the Vote Project, where code causes change. Let's hear that outro. Crank it up. So we're here to ensure that the right to vote will be preserved. Yes, we do have a long way to go to get all of the people registered to voting aid. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting 2 million ballots by hand.